Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Join me, if you would, in Romans chapter 11. Uh, Romans chapter 11 today, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish up this chapter. This chapter has been, uh, this is going to be kind of the end of a, a section that we've been in, Romans chapters 9 through 11, which has been kind of like we've, we've talked about already, that parenthetical uh, statement where Paul just kind of jumps out of this treatise on the gospel. He still keeps the focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, but kind of gets into this idea of how the gospel applies to the Israelites or to the Jewish people specifically, uh, because the Jewish people rejected the gospel, rejected the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ, because they rejected Jesus for the most part. And we've seen through this that there has been a remnant of faithful Jews. Uh, those became the apostles and, and the early church. And because of that, we have faith today um, as the Gentiles. But we've been focusing, or he's been looking at um, Israel regarding salvation, how their rejection has led to the gospel becoming, coming to us. So in some ways, <coughs> we say we have pity on the Israelites for having rejected Jesus. But in some ways, we are thankful because that remnant of faithful believers who took the gospel to the Gentiles because today we have this heritage of faith 2,000 years later that it comes to a little church in Lexington, Kentucky, a group of believers who gather to look into the word of God and be strengthened by the fact that Jesus is our living hope, that the gospel gives us eternal life, and that through him and only through him can we be saved. But Paul's been dealing through chapters 9 through 11, has been dealing with this main question, did God fail in keeping his promise to Israel? Because if you know much about the Old Testament, about Jewish history, God had made a covenant, right? We talked about this in the past several weeks as we've worked our way through chapters 9 through 11. So I don't want to belabor the point anymore, but God covenant with Abraham. And he said, out of your seed will come a mighty nation that I will use to bless the rest of the world through you. And he said, and you will be my chosen people. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will show my power. I will show my goodness. I will show my justice. I will show my strength. I will show my law. I will show everything through my relationship with you. And the Jewish people said, that's wonderful. And then throughout history in the Old Testament, we see there were periods where said, that's wonderful. We want to be your people. And then there were other times when they said, no, we don't want to be your people. We want to be Baal's people, or we want to be Molech's people, or we want to be other gods, and we want to chase after our own gods, which is really a microcosm and an example to all of us as believers, Gentile or Jew alike, that we go through periods where we want to be God's people, and we go through other periods where we don't necessarily want that. We love the blessing of being God's people, but we don't always want the relationship side of being God's people. And so we've seen that happen over and over again. And their final, that, what looks like in chapters 9 through 11, that final straw was when God sent Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, to be the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies that all the Jewish boys and, boys and girls were told about. And everyone knew that the Messiah was one day coming when the Messiah finally came and he bled and he died on a cross and he burst forth out of a tomb to conquer sin in the grave. For the most part, the majority of the Jewish people said, no thanks, we're waiting for somebody else. He can't be the one that you are going to send. And so as Paul has been 
answering this question, did God fail in keeping his promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations? And now, to us, that may not be a huge question for us to consider in 2022 as Gentile people, but to the first Christ, for the first century Christian reader there in Rome who had Jewish heritage or was a Gentile itself, they were wondering about this. Did God fail to keep his promise with the people? And it's looking like the trajectory of God's chosen people was that he, they were not going to keep their promise even though God kept his. See, God promised Israel, I'll bless Israel with salvation and I'll use them to bring that blessing to all nations. But they turned their back on Jesus. So did God fail? And the question is answered several times in our text. Paul answers it with two words, right? Remember what those words are? Absolutely not. Did God fail his people? Absolutely not. And we can take it to the bank, church, that when God makes a promise, he doesn't fail to keep his promise. His promise is always sure. We may waver and it may look like all the things in all of the universe is poised against God being able to keep his promise. But thank God he is sovereign. Thank God he is powerful. And he keeps his promise even when we break ours. He keeps his promise. See, because God built his church on the foundation of the Jewish apostles. So the gospel still went forth to the nations from Jewish people. They were still being blessed. And to this day, God has preserved a remnant of Jewish people who trust in him. And last week we saw that better days are still ahead for Israel. God hasn't given up on Israel. Because one day, Israel is going to come back as a nation. Now, not every individual person, but as a nation, the majority of Jewish people will come to know that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that they missed thousands of years ago. And then the Bible says that there will be a worldwide gospel movement like we have never seen before. Now, we live in the United States. The United States has kind of borne that title of being the greatest missionary sending nation of all time. But I tell you this, and this is good, that will cease to be true when the Jewish people come to Christ. Because then there will be a worldwide gospel movement like the world has never seen before in history. God is still working through his people, and he's still working through us church today as well. And when that happens, it's going to be amazing. And through all of this, we see that God in his immense grace and his love and his mercy for humanity has taken the Jewish rejection and blessed Gentiles with salvation as a faithful remnant took the gospel to those who would hear and receive. So yes, God has kept his promise. He is keeping his promise to the Jews. He has kept his promise to the church. He is keeping his promise to the church. He has kept his promises to you and he is keeping his promises to you because our God doesn't break his promises. He doesn't. And if that wasn't message enough, we're going to look at a couple of things as we end this passage this morning. So let's begin in verse number 28 and reading uh, through the end of the chapter. It says this, regarding the gospel, Paul, basically in this passage, he's going to summarize everything we've seen in chapters 9 through 11. He's going to summarize it all right here. So this is kind of the, the cliff notes version of what we've seen in chapters 9 through 11. It says, regarding the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. Underline that, highlight that, tattoo that, whatever you need to do, God's gracious gift and calling are irrevocable. When God starts a work in you, when he calls you to something, when he gifts you with something, nothing takes it back. Nothing extinguishes the promises of God. Nothing extinguishes God's plan and design in your life and the way he has gifted you and the promises that he has given you. They are irrevocable. 
The same God that's wonderful to be praised when you're on the mountaintop is the same God while you doubt in the valley and in the shadow of doubt and death. He's the same God. And those gifts and promises are still applying just as they, are, as they were freshly given on the mountaintop. Look at verse number 30. As you once disobeyed God, but have now received mercy through their disobedience, they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. So there's the summary of chapters 9 through 11. No, God hasn't failed Israel. He still loves them, and he's holding on to his promise, and he's holding them up in his promise. And then verse number 29 says that God doesn't go back on his word. He never goes back on his word. His grace and his calling are always irrevocable, and he has used Israel's current rejection for good toward the Gentiles. Leave it to God to be able to turn our evil and use it still for his good glory. Our evil can still be used for his good glory. Now look at verse number 32. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that they may have mercy on all. Man, talk about a strange statement, right? God has imprisoned all in disobedience. Man, that makes God sound like a tough judge, right? Tough judge. But here's why he did it, so that he may have mercy on all. I have to tell you, this verse while I was preparing this week jumped off the page at me because I'm looking at it and I'm going, I had never seen or thought about it this way, that God is so good that he even uses our misery in sin and our rebellion and our rejection, he uses it as a path towards our redemption in him. Because I don't know about you, but when I begin to get down, I begin to feel the consequences of my sin, guess where I still find myself turning when I realize that things didn't go the way I thought they would in Derekland. I turn back to God and say, okay, God, I tried it my way and it didn't work. Let's go your way. And while it would have still been better if I'd said, let's go God's way to begin with, God is still merciful and loving enough that while I work myself into a prison, he breaks the chains and pulls me out because he used that moment and he used that pain to draw me closer to him. He redeems even our unrighteousness for his glory. And I think that's the reaction that Paul has here too because the rest of the chapter is like this spontaneous declaration of worship and praise to God. Because Paul, it's kind of like, like I had it. Who does something like that? Like what do I normally want to do when I've advised, when I've tried to help and I've tried to help people like, see, here's what you need to do. And they look at me and still say, yeah, we're going to do this. I, I, I'm always tempted. I don't know if you're like this. I'm always tempted to say, well, you know what? I, there's going to be an I told you so moment. How many of you like I told you so's? You don't like, no, no, no. How many of you like to say it? Yeah, yeah. We've got two honest people back in the audio booth, right? I love it when I say I told you so. I love it. Now, I know I'm supposed to be like, you know, compassionate and not do that. But in my head, I'm going, I told you so. And I'm doing a dance. Why? Because I told you so, man. If you just listened to me, it's almost like if somebody had listened to me before, they'd be happier, right? How many of you like hearing I told you so? You. You know who really hates hearing I told you so? This guy right here. I hate it. But God takes even those I told you so moments and he uses them for his glory and for our good. How many times does God, could God just sit up there and be like, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so, but instead, and how many times could he say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of telling you so. Just forget it, I've cast you away. He doesn't do it with Israel, he's not gonna do it with his people, ever. He uses those moments when we get ourselves in a mess, he still uses that mess to turn us to his glory. Who thinks of that? Who conceives of that? Only God. 
And this is what Paul says here. This is his reaction to how good God is. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I picture Paul just screaming this out, you know. Got his hand raised, you know, he's, he's got his, his, his praise hands are up and everything. And he says, in the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Boom. 9 through 11 finished. One of the hardest passages of scriptures I've ever had to expound upon when I preached. And this is how it ends. It ends in the wonder of what an awesome God we serve. Because as through chapters 9 through 11, even the apostle Paul, a learned man, couldn't figure God out. Couldn't peg him down to where I say, all right, God, he's, you're in my box and I fully understand him now. No, Paul is still left not knowing everything that God is doing. But he says, man, how awesome is he? How amazing is he? He doesn't step back and say, you know what? I don't think I can follow a God that I can't completely figure out. No, he steps back and he says, that's a God I want to follow because his ways are higher than mine. His knowledge is deeper than mine. His power is greater than mine. And all I can do is just respond in worship. So that's what I want to look at this morning. The gospel, the gospel that calls us to worship. Father, I pray that you would speak this morning. And I pray this morning that as I preach, I would just paint as good of a picture as I possibly can of your goodness, of your power, of your infinite wisdom. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that in your holiness, you saw not to reject us, even though in our sin, we rejected you. I pray this morning you would draw us to a deeper knowledge of you, a deeper understanding, and draw us closer to you. And I pray if somebody doesn't know you as Savior today, let them come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, take a moment and I want you just to think about the times that you have found yourself like dumbstruck, like found yourself in absolute awe or wonder. Just take just a sec. Close your eyes if you need to. I'm going to give you about 10 seconds of silence. Take a moment and just think about when did I find myself in the greatest sense of awe and wonder? All right, you got that, mo that moment? For me, I'll tell you, I've had a couple of moments. All right, I cheated a little bit. I'm not going to give you the one moment. I'm going to give you a couple. For me, one of those moments when I was just struck with awe and wonder was when I saw the doors open at the back of the sanctuary and I saw Stacy come out in her wedding dress and approach me on her wedding day. I mean, I'm like, wow, I'm lucky. But I'm like, this girl wants to marry me. Man, I'm lucky. And then I'm, I'm like, I hope her eyesight never improves. Right? Another time was at the birth of my daughters. Those were moments of wonder. Seeing life just kind of like, you know, the way it takes place. And I've, I, I, I've never been before, but I hear a lot of people sit, that have been there say that their first view of the Grand Canyon is one of those just moments where you go, I never knew that things could be like this. For me, it's when I go to the beach, when I look out over the horizon of the ocean, there's just nothing but the expanse of water. It makes me realize, man, I'm, in, I'm so small, I'm so little. Same thing when I, we look up in the heavens and you start contemplating the, the vastness of our solar system and then the Milky Way galaxy and then the universe out beyond that. And it's like, man, those two things, the ocean and space, always make me think how big God is. And it puts it into perspective. He's God and I'm not. I can't even touch it. And he holds it all right in the palm of his hands. 
Those moments where we have awe that's, that just are we brought to that. These are the things that we experience that call us to take notice that we're not as in control as we think we like, as we like to think that we are. Those are the things that put us in moments of awe and in wonder, right? And that we're not as big, we're not as strong, we're not as smart as we may assume to be. And for me, that always leads me to contemplate the vastness of God. And I think that's what Paul is coming to here. Paul is a smart dude. And he's like, I can't figure it all out. And he's like, he just throws his hands up in worship. And he's like, that's, that's a good thing. I can't figure you out, God. That's a good thing. Because you've asked me to follow you by faith. You didn't ask me to figure you out before I could come to you. You asked me to follow you by faith with as small as a tiny mustard seed and you'll take me in and you'll make me yours. He spent three chapters contemplating the bottomless depth of the doctrine of God's grace. He spent three chapters contemplating the endless love and mercy of God and the impenetrable nature of God's commitment to his promises even when people he loved the most said no to him. He never gave up on loving them. And like verse 32 says, they were disobedient to him in the face of all of the goodness that God had shown them. Disobedient to him. It's like Paul just gets overwhelmed at this moment as he's processing all of this and the spirit is breathing on him to write this praise hymn that we see in verses 33 through 36. I don't know if Paul had a good singing voice, but I view this passage in verses 33 through 36 as like a praise song that Paul pens. Because Paul is filled with this sense of awe and wonder at God's plan and his plot of redemption as the Holy Spirit is throwing these things out into his spirit as he's pinning them down. I think he stops and he just takes a moment and says, I have to praise him. Do you ever have moments in your life where that happens, where you're so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that you say, I can't do anything but praise him? I think we had kind of a moment like that this morning as we were singing today. Hands up, tears were flowing because how good God is. Treasure those moments. Not emotional moments, but moments where you're called to the glory of God. Because I don't think we call ourselves to the glory of God that much anymore. I don't think our culture is really set up in a way that it points us to see the glory of God. I think at every turn, when something amazing happens, we're pointed in every direction away from the glory of God so that we don't contemplate him. Consider our time of worship this morning. Do you think in your heart that you had the, the posture of Paul here? This breathless amazement of God's nature. See, I believe we need that breathless amazement of the gospel. Because the gospel points to an awesome and wondrous God. So I want to look at some unfathomable facts about God that Paul points out in his praise. That we need, we need to be reminded of and we need to keep our eyes on as we follow him. Number one is this. Is that God is good in absolutely everything that he does. And let me add to that. God is absolutely good in absolutely everything he does. That means that there is nothing that is not good about God and there is never a time when God is not good. Right? Never a time. So I'm going to test you with how churchy you are this morning. All right? How, how like, you know, you are into church lingo. Okay? Because you've probably heard this phrase, right? God is good and all the time. God is good. All right, everybody here is pretty churchy, right? You pass, you pass the test. But that's really what this point is saying. God is absolutely good in absolutely everything that he does. Most of us know that statement. And here's, here's the question I have, church. And this was a question I had about myself this, as, I was, as, I was, as I was preparing this. If I know that statement, that God is good all the time and all the time God is good, why don't I live like the statement is true? 
Why don't we always live absolutely like God is good absolutely all the time? Because we still have seasons of doubt, don't we? If God is absolutely good in everything that he does, that means that every moment, every situation, we have an opportunity to praise him because he is still good in everything. But we still have seasons of doubt, don't we? We still have moments where we could be quicker to give you a list of things that God hasn't done or we're still waiting on God to do then we have a list of the things that God has done. We have a list that's longer of the things that God has missed out on doing. If he was really good, he would have done differently, don't we? Oh, God is good all the time and all the time God is good on Sunday, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, if God was really good, my bank account would look a lot better than it does. If God was really good, I wouldn't be feeling my age the way that I do. If God was really good, I'd be losing this weight faster. And that's where I'm at right now. I'd be losing this weight faster than when. Do you realize that I did like three days? I, I, I kept my calories good. I did some push-ups. Do you realize I'm still fat? Do you have any idea how frustrating that is? Right? If God was really good, he'd be better. That's what we're really saying, right? If God was really good, he'd be better. Now, what we're really saying, if God was really good, he'd think like me. But the problem is that we're broken. We're tainted by sin. So even our understanding of good is going to be tainted. Our understanding of good is still going to be pushed at times by our own selfish wants. But God is absolutely good, absolutely all the time. Right? At times in the text, it makes you scratch your head and ask, would an absolutely good God really do the things the way he's doing it in this text? If you remember back in chapter 9, right? Would he choose from some for salvation and some for destruction? Would he love Jacob and really hate Esau if he were really good, like it said right there in the word? Would he harden Pharaoh's heart in order to bring Israel out of bondage? If he's really good, would he do it that way? If he was really good, would he have honestly let Jezebel order the slaughter of all of God's prophets except for Elijah? If God was really good, why did he let it go that way? So I'm currently reading this, this classic book by C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain. And in that, Lewis, who is a former atheist, an avowed atheist, and probably one of the smartest guys in the world at that time, comes to Christ and he begins to answer the one question that made him struggle with Jesus the most. And that was, if God is good, if there is a good God and a loving God, then why is there pain that exists in the world? And that's really a universal question that most people have today. And this is the struggle, thinking that God's goodness is defined or determined by human evil. Meaning thinking that God's characterization of goodness is somehow limited by the presence of evil all around him. That if God were good, he would override human evil and not allow it to happen. But I want you to understand something, church, and this is what I'm struggling to find in my life too, is that the reality of God's goodness doesn't hinge on the presence or absence of evil. God's not good because evil does or doesn't exist. It doesn't, God's goodness doesn't exist on the absence and presence of evil any more than the reality of you being in this room right now hinges on the fact that everyone else is not in this room. See, the fact that the rest of the world is not in this room does not change the fact that you are in this room. And the fact that the rest of the world is broken and evil does not change the fact that God is absolutely good. God is good regardless. And what makes God is so good is that he is working his goodness in the face of all of that evil around. It's that light that shines in the darkness. That's the point of verses 28 through 32. 
Especially in verse number 32, he says, God has imprisoned all of those in disobedience so that he may have mercy in all. That's God's goodness in light of our sin, is that he allows the brokenness and the imprisoning consequences of sin in order for us to see that we need rescue. God doesn't let us go. He doesn't go, you know what? I'm done. You keep on time and time and time again. You keep on going the other way. Just go your own way this time. Just go. You ever seen that video? I wish I'd put it on the screen. Have you seen the video of that sheep that gets caught in a ditch? Have you seen this? The sheep that's caught in a ditch and this guy goes over and he pulls him out of this ditch and it's somewhere in Europe or somewhere and they have these like ditches along the road and, and so he, the, he's caught and he, he picks the, sh- the sheep up and he pulls him out of the ditch and the sheep starts running on down the road and like, I kid you not, five yards down the road, he jumps back in the same ditch. <laughs> now I understand why Jesus calls us sheep. Right? Because God is absolutely good, regardless of the evil that's all around us, regardless of the evil that we contrive. God is always good. This is why we can still say that when gunmen walk into public places and take innocent lives, we can still say that God is still good. Because God didn't make that evil happen. God has given us a path of redemption out of that. But it's up to us to receive that. And here's what Paul says, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, untraceable his ways. He's saying what kind of God is so good and so gracious that he would turn even our disobedience into a path toward blessing. How good is a God that would turn even our, obedience, our disobedience into a path toward blessing? What kind of God takes our rejection of him and uses it as part of his good plan for our lives? God took our disobedience and he uses it as the catalyst that draws us to him. See, the greatest example of this is the cross. The greatest example of this is when God sent Jesus to die on the cross. That in our sin, in our rejection, in our arrogance, and in our rebellion, God sent Jesus to die on the cross. And what was the cross at that time? It was a symbol of execution. The worst of the worst died on that cross. The cross was that ultimate act of human rebellion too, where we literally killed Jesus. We killed God in the flesh on the cross. That was that symbol of the ultimate act of rebellion, the ultimate evil that mankind could contrive. We killed God. But at the same time, that cross was an instrument of our salvation, wasn't it? The cross was where the blood was shed for our redemption. That at the height of our evil, God was at the height of his redemption. And doing redemption work. God didn't save us in spite of the cross, folks. He saved us through it. See, God is absolutely good, absolutely all the time, no matter how absolutely evil everything else may be. In our moment of great evil, in killing God, that very same moment he was using it to do a glorious act of saving us. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says. He says, the gospel is a great irony that we live through the death of the God that we murdered. We get to live through the death of the God that we murdered. Who but God would do that? And who but God would ever contrive that kind of goodness on their own? The answer is there's no one but God that would do that. And while that's happening, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. See, God is absolutely good, absolutely all the time. And the second thing we see is that God is beyond us in absolutely every single way. God is beyond us in absolutely every single way. And I think 
this is going to turn into a two-part message. All right, so just letting you know that because there's four points. We're only going to cover two this morning. God is beyond us in absolutely every single way. Look once again at our text in verse number 33 and see what Paul begins to praise God for. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? See, here Paul declares the endless depth of God. He declares his riches, his wisdom, his knowledge. And we know from other passages in Scripture that how rich is God? Well, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills that the cattle are on. He is rich. How wise is God? Well, there is no end to his wisdom. How smart is God? He's omniscient. He knows everything. Then he talks about this unattainable nature of God. He says his judgment is unsearchable. That means I can't argue my way around God's will and God's purpose and God's wisdom because if it were an argument in court, if God was arguing his plan in court, it's watertight. You can't outsmart God. You can't argue with God. Has anybody ever tried to argue with God? You ever tried to do it? How'd that go? Honestly. And you know what's sad today? Is that there are many people that is what they're doing. Arguing with God. And each time we argue with God, we're faced with the same thing. You're never going to figure me out. That's why I've told you to follow me by faith. And for most, that's the hardest part. There comes a time when all the arguing stops, not because you've got all the answers. The arguing stops because you've seen a God that's bigger than you. And you realize all I can do is follow in faith. See, his judgment is unsearchable. His ways are untraceable. That means they're unpredictable because they're so far advanced what we are. It's kind of like if you ever watch, you know, if you're, if you're into movies and stuff and you watch these sci-fi movies where, you know, Earth is about to be, you know, Earth is about to be attacked by some alien species out there. And, you know, it's always that the alien species is just so more advanced than we are because, of course, because if we were that advanced, we would be going out and attacking other, alien, other species, right? Because they're going to attack us. Why? And, and, and this is the idea. They're untraceable because they're so advanced. I don't understand what they're doing. This is God. Not that he's an alien attacking us. But God is above us. Yes, Jesus came as the Son of God, as a man, 100% man, but he is still 100% God. And he did not come to attack us, but he came to show us that to live by kingdom standards is the wisest way to live. To live by his law is the most peaceful way to live and the most just way to live. We are, it is untraceable. It's so far advanced than us. And see, Paul is ex overflowing from this spirit and a heart of true worship because Paul is like, I've tried to figure you out. I've tried to understand. And the pieces that you have graciously let me understand are blowing me away with appreciation for who you are, with worship for who you are. I feel like this is a problem with our culture today and, our, and especially with the American church today is we've lost our sense of wonder of the God we worship. We've gotten to a place where we have to contrive an emotional feeling or atmosphere to feel like we've connected with God. But folks, we connect with God through his word and through prayer. Just through seeing a tree that's out there that God has created, we connect with God by his handiwork. 
Not by someone manipulating and putting together something that makes us feel good, but by the truth of his word. See, God is absolutely good, absolutely all the time, and he is absolutely far above us. I think many times we approach worship today as what's going to be in it for me. What's going to be in it for me? Are they going to have the program for my kids that I like when I get there? Are they going to have this in place? Is that going to be in place? And it becomes a consumer mindset to come to the worship service. It becomes a service that I judge by how much I can consume. Folks, that's not worship. Worship is falling on my face before a holy God, coming to present myself to a God who I'm lucky to even approach. That's what worship is. And Paul is coming to that knowledge here. After reviewing God's hand and his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy as it deals with salvation, he just starts declaring how much farther God is advanced than us. And for a guy like Paul to declare, God, you're so far above me that God's intellect and his judgment and nature are beyond his reach, that's saying something. Because here's Paul. Paul is probably one of the most intellectual guys on the planet at the time that this is written. Probably one of the most intellectual guys in history. Like if Paul was in the room today, he may not know a whole lot about pop culture, but Paul still knows a lot of stuff. All right? He had the equivalent of what we would call an Ivy League doctorate, and he was magna summa cum laude at that. I mean, he studied under the greatest minds in history at that time. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel and he learned his doctrine in Jewish theology under him. He also studied as a Roman citizen under some of the most intense philosophers of the day. In the book of Acts, we see how Paul was so smart. Because in the book of Acts, he stood on a temple at Mars Hill and he stood among the leading philosophers of the day. People like Aristotle and Plato and all those people that we study in school and marvel at how smart they were. He stood beyond people like that and he argued that God is real to all of them and the Bible says they were left dumbfounded by his reasoning. Paul was no dummy. And Paul looked at this and said, compared to God, I can't even put two words together. This is how high God is. This is how vast he is. Who could conceive of a salvation and a gospel so beautiful and so patient and so just and so glorious? No one but God. It's like the song that we sang this morning. Who could imagine such great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? That the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. What heart could fathom that? What mind could come up with that? Only God. Because what we would come up with is what all the other false religions have come up with in the past. Every single one of them. I'm going to work my way up there, baby. Only God said, you can't get here. I'm coming to you. Only God. And only Jesus. Here's another churchy statement that we often make, but we live like we don't believe. God's ways are what? Higher than our ways. Or God's ways are not our ways. Or the Lord works in mysterious ways. Again, those are true statements, but if we really believe it, why do we struggle so much when he starts acting in those high and mysterious ways? When we can't figure out what he's doing. See, most of our issues with God and with Jesus stem from the fact that when it's all said and done, we think that we know what's best for us and we want to dictate to God rather than it be the other way around. 
We have a Jesus that exists to make my life good by my standards. No, 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 no. Salvation is coming to Jesus who is the Lord and Savior. And he knows because what we were left on our own, we were headed down a road that we didn't need to go. The Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction. Here's where our way goes. Even our good way, destruction. And Jesus said, narrow is the path that leads to righteousness. But the truth is that our ideas of what's best or how things should be are so limited by our human scope of comprehension, so limited by my want for comfort and luxury that what we think should be doesn't even scratch the surface of what God knows needs to be. What I think I need for my future and what I think my future should look like doesn't even scratch the surface for what God already knows my future looks like in him. This is why we follow Jesus in faith. In faith. We step out and say, God, I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know what your plan is with me. But I know it's the best for me. And I'm trusting you. Leaning on his knowledge. Leaning on his wisdom. Leaning on his power. And if we keep that mindset that we know better than God, we eventually slide into this mindset that we won't need him or that we're better off without him. And that's why we see so many people today saying, I'm leaving the faith or I have problems with this or I don't like that and I don't like this is because we get to the point where we think that God has to play by my rules and if he's not going to play by my rules then I don't need him and I'll find someone who does. Folks, God is absolutely good absolutely all the time. And God is so absolutely beyond what we can fathom or think it's ridiculous to try to put him in our box. Because if we can fit God in our box, he's not God anymore. We are. And we're not good gods. We're not good gods. Two more points that we'll look at next Sunday. Is God is necessary in absolutely every single way. He's necessary in absolutely every single way. And then we'll also see that the only proper response is to worship this God. The only proper response to him is to worship him. That's it. We'll look at those two next Sunday. But as we close out this morning, I just want to ask you, as we close our head, or as we close our head and bow our eyes, oh wow, <laughs> don't close your head. That's, no, that's not good. Open your heart. You keep your head closed. That's fine. Open your heart, right? As we bow our heads and we close our eyes, just contemplate what we've heard this morning. And I pray that what you've heard has not been from me, it's been from the Lord. How good have you been giving God credit for being? Have you been giving God credit for being good? Or is it just lip service? Are we just popping off with God's good all the time and all the time God is good except for the rest of the week? Except for when I have questions, when I have problems, or when I have struggles. Except for when I don't win. I don't get that promotion that I went for. Or I don't you know, things just don't go the way I would. How good is God now? Because if God were good, good things would be happening to me. Well, God's good looks a little different than ours, doesn't it? So the question for us is we follow him. And the Bible says that as the days go on, it's going to get worse and worse. And it's going to get harder and harder. A lot of things. And so is God still good when inflation hits hard? Right? Is God still good when our health begins to give out? Is God still good when my family rejects me? Like some of you, that's what you're dealing with right now. 
real life situations. Is God still good? Can we come to the place where we still say God is good and where we can trust his goodness? Can you trust him? And that his ways are higher than our ways. And here's how beautiful his highway is. Is that he paved a path to heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. God works in mysterious ways. Here's the greatest mystery of all. None of us have any business getting grace. None of us have any business being forgiven for our sins. None of us have any business being allowed into God's family. We're not good enough. None of us have any business that Jesus, the Son of God, would come and in perfection give his life so that we could have heaven as our own. When we were there murdering him, he was redeeming us. None of us deserve that. That's how high and mysterious his ways are. You know why he can be trusted? Because all of his ways are good and all of his ways are for our good. The question is, can we trust him? So as we pray this morning, as we open the altar for a time of invitation, I just want to ask you, have you trusted him for salvation? If not, let today be the day that you do that. If you're watching today, you're still listening, trust to Jesus as your savior. It's the wisest thing you'll ever do. Anyone can call upon him, but we all must repent that we need him. Or if you're here this morning, you say, I'm saved, but here's the question. Can I trust him with my everything? Will I trust him with my everything? And you begin to worship, and when you begin to trust him, you find that he is a God to worship. He really is. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.